welcome back to Public Books 101, the podcast that turns a scholarly eye to a world worth studying. I'm your host, Nicholas Dames. I'm an English professor at Columbia University and an editor-in-chief of Public Books, which is a magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship that's free and online. You can read the magazine at publicbooks.org. In this season of our podcast, we're exploring the ongoing significance, or some might say the waning prominence, of the novel as a cultural form in the 21st century. Today, I'll be speaking with Garth Greenwell, a novelist, poet, and essayist, and Daniel Wright, who's a literature professor and cultural critic. We'll be discussing how novels help us think about sex and intimacy in ways that differ from how films, TV shows, pornography, and visual art have represented these fundamental human experiences. To explore how novels do this, we'll talk for a while about a wonderfully strange and formally experimental book by Barbara Browning. It's called The Gift, or Techniques of the Body. Barbara Browning is also an academic and dancer, and The Gift was published in 2017. Reading it made me think a lot about the borders between fiction, autobiography, and critical theory. The book also introduces questions about the ethics of writing fiction about friendships and sexual relationships that actually exist in an author's real life. You can purchase The Gift and any of the other novels we discuss through Harvard Bookstore, an independent shop in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We're partnering with them this season, and there's a link in the show notes where you can buy books and support them online. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, we would really appreciate it if you'd subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app and rate and review it in Apple Podcasts. This helps new listeners find the show. All right, let's dive into my conversation with Garth Greenwell and Daniel Wright about novels, sex, and intimacy more broadly. I'm Daniel Wright. I'm an associate professor of English at the University of Toronto. I specialize in uh, the Victorian novel and the history and theory of the novel more broadly, and I'm the author of Bad Logic, Reasoning About Desire in the Victorian Novel. Thank you. Garth? My name is Garth Greenwell. Um, I'm the author of two books of fiction, What Belongs to You and Cleanness. So we decided, uh, I should say, that Garth, this was your uh, inspiration here. We were going to talk about Barbara Browning's The Gift as our sort of example novel about really the novel in this century, over the last 20 years. And I'm going to test you both. I mean, I think this actually is a really strenuous test. I'm going to test you as far as how you can summarize the gift. So maybe if I can have each of you start a sentence, um, and maybe maybe summary may not be quite quite the right way to put it, but I'm going to have you start a sentence with, the gift is, and I'd like you to finish that sentence for me. So Garth, do you want to take the first crack at that? So I do think it's pretty impossible for this book to have (laughs) uh, an encapsulating sentence. And something that's interesting is there's a kind of anxiety within the book. There are kind of these constant declarations of theme and subject matter Um, For me, I would say The Gift is a book about two things. One, circulation, um, circulation of money, circulation of art, circulation of affect, maybe most interestingly, the circulation of intimacy. And then I think it's also um, a book about the idea of being careful and what it means to be careful of others and whether there is maybe an irresolvable tension between being careful of others and making art. That's remarkably well done. Uh, Set a high standard, Danny. Would you want to take your own crack at this? Yeah, and I think I'll I'll echo some of what Garth is getting at. Um, 
The Gift is a novel, I think, about... I'm drawing a phrase from the novel itself um, to describe it as a novel about digitally mediated intimacies. Um, and that's a phrase... Um, the narrator of the novel, who's a novelist herself, gets an email from a graduate student who wants to write a dissertation on her work and says, I'm working on digitally mediated intimacies. And I think that your work is going to help me to think about this topic. So, And she picks up on this kind of double meaning that I think is really um, an elegant way for the novel to um, get at one of its big themes, which is this tension between like digital meaning computers, digital meaning virtual, digital meaning distant um, versus digital meaning fingers, touch, um, closeness. Um, so I think that, you know, that's how I would describe this novel, a novel about the distanced intimacy made possible by the digital, um, the intimacy of catfishing, <laughs> um, but also the intimacy made possible through um, choreographed kind of movements of the body, playing the ukulele, masturbation, foot rubs, um, all kinds of touch that run through the novel. So this novel has a somewhat odd relation to the, its own status as a novel. And I, I wonder if, you know, Garth, if you want to say a bit about the extent to which, if you think there's if the attention in even calling this a novel. Well, I mean, I think there's a tension in the use of the word novel generally. And I think, you know, the literature of our moment right now is um, troubled by and excited by that tension. Um, you know, I don't have any problem thinking of it as a novel because the book says it's a novel and Barbara Browning says it's a novel. But, um, you know, she does use both in this book and in other books, um, she uses other kinds of descriptions for what she's doing. So she talks about blurring the boundary between her academic work as um, a researcher in performance studies and fiction, um, obviously essay. Um, but also she sometimes talks about her work in terms, and especially maybe her first novel, which actually wasn't published in print, but is available as an audiobook, who is Mr. Waxman, where she, she says it's pretty bloggish. So sort of blogs are another potential model for what she's doing. Danny, is there anything you'd like to say about this? Because uh, if we tend to think about the novel as, as entirely fictional, obviously there are, you know, loosely put non-fictional elements here. And uh, is there anything you'd want to say about the balance between those two or how that balance is executed here? Yeah, I mean, if we think of this as part of um, the mode that we call auto fiction these days. I was actually at a conference last week, the big MLA convention, where there was a panel about this topic. And one of the things that the people on that panel came around to was that there really is no such thing as auto fiction as we describe it. And I kind of am compelled by this argument that actually to say that a novel like this one, The Gift, incorporates the non-fictional um, is maybe a bit misleading in some way that, that this is a fictional novel. Um, but I think that this novel in particular wants to play with that, as both of you have been saying, that there's a, an, a, a sort of particular self-awareness in this novel about the relationship between fiction and reality and the play with what is fictional and what is not fictional and the incorporation of, you know, real people as characters. Um, but I think it's a, an interesting experiment to think about what if we just read this as a, as a novel, as a fictional mm -hmm 
text and not as through this lens of autofiction or or the real. Right. Could you could you just circle back for a second and, and offer a very brief definition of what autofiction usually means? I mean, I think part of why it's such an interesting label is that it get it gets attached to such a wide range of fiction from Garth's work to um Elena Ferrante's Neapolitan novels to this novel, right? There's a to Sheila Hetty's work. And these are really diverse and, and different um, novelists. But I think that the thing that unites them is this sort of like extra novelistic sense that what we're reading is a story drawn from autobiography, a story in which the narrator and the author are identified with each other, in which we're reading a kind of fictionalization of a real life rather than mm. an entirely fictional text. Yeah. Garth, do you have additional thoughts or feelings about autofiction? Do you think this is a real category? And 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 do you, I mean and do you think it relates to your own work as a novelist? Well, so I have I'm of two minds. On one hand, no, it's not a real category. It's just the oldest game in literature. Um, <laughs> you know, and sort of there has never been a clear one has never been able to draw clear and unimpeachable lines between life and work. On the other hand, it does seem to me that there are a, that there's a group of writers right now that are not just blurring the lines or or playing with the lines of fiction nonfiction, but are also united by an interest in incorporating into the novel very heterogeneous kinds of writing, including very essayistic writing, art critical writing. And then I also think this group of writers, if I think of people like Teju Cole, Ben Lerner, Sheila Hetty, W.G. Zabold, that they're all inheriting what I think of as kind of the phenomenological, the tradition of the phenomenological novel, um, which, you know, I would say is a tradition, um, you know, that, that goes back to Augustine's Confessions, but that obviously at the end of the 19th century becomes something a little more aware of itself. And that is just a novel that takes as its primary concern a kind of awareness of awareness or a sort of attention to perception itself. And the project of which is an attempt to get onto the page what consciousness feels like. Um, you know, autofiction doesn't really have a lot of meaning for me as a term but I am interested in writers who are engaged in a project that I think it's a very big family and, you know, it would be very hard to try to make a kind of defensible definition of that. But I do feel a kind of affinity among a, a sort of group of writers working right now. Yeah. So Garth, you've, I mean, you've, you've, Worked in many different genres. You've you've written fiction. You've written, I suppose, what could be categorized as nonfiction, and, and certainly criticism. So, what if you can explain to us briefly? Like, do you feel like you have an investment in the novel as a as a form or the term in any way? Is there something that you think about doing differently uh, in that form than in the other genres that you work in? So I don't really have an attachment to the novel as a genre or to sort of, um, you know, in the way that, so my, my initial training in literature was in poetry. Um, and for 20 years I wrote poetry and, and all of my scholarship was focused on poetry. And I do have a real attachment 
attachment to say the question of like, what is a sonnet? Like that is something, you know, I have strong feelings about, but I just don't about what is a novel. And in my own case, you know, the, the sort of question of the big project of what I'm trying to do, um, the lines are very porous and indistinct and, you know, it does not feel to me to be the case that like what I was doing as a poet, what I do as an essayist and a critic, what I do as a novelist, that these are radically different projects. I don't think they are. Where there is a big distinction for me as both a writer and a reader is between what seems to me like aesthetic writing and non-aesthetic writing. So writing that is invested in form as a primary um, category of being and writing that seems to me more functional and writing that thinks of itself more easily as just a kind of medium for the transmission of information. That seems really meaningful to me. Yeah. the Almost like the interference with the transmission of information. Yeah. Danny, can I, 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 I want to hear you talk about this as well, although I know that, you know, your position is somewhat different because you're uh, you're an academic who, uh, you know, like I do, works on the novel or could be said to work on the novel, right? So I, I feel like you and I both have some sort of odd professional investment in this category that we might right. need to... We, we get paid to, to care about novels. <laughs> we do. And, if it, and, and, and yeah, that, that's sort of uh, how we get our money. And and, uh, and, and maybe we have, a, a you know, that, therefore a, a, an investment in its continued relevance. But I'm... I'm I'm curious actually about your relationship to the novel on a more personal level, Danny. I mean, is is there a difference between reading a novel for work and reading a novel for what what we might call reading for pleasure? Yeah, I mean, I think that these practices for me are different in kind of um what I would call like concrete and embodied ways. I when I, you know, where am I reading? Do I have a pen in my hand? Um but I think more broadly, they're sort of continuous and overlapping practices. I think particularly when it comes to teaching, um, I think in the space of the classroom, that's often where um, the sort of techniques of pleasure reading and the techniques of academic reading hopefully, ideally come together. I mean, I think part of our training as scholars of the novel is thinking about how the novel works, thinking about what it means as a sort of cultural form, um, hopefully deepens our pleasure in reading novels. And that's hopefully what we sort of transmit to students or give students the capacity to do is to read for pleasure with some of the tools that academic reading provides. So I think also, you know, for me, like you, Nick, people whose training is in the 19th century novel, I think that comes into play, especially because I sort of toggle back and forth between teaching 19th century fiction and teaching contemporary fiction, usually contemporary queer and trans fiction. And so that's one way in which I think for me, sort of pleasure reading and work reading often blur together and especially in classroom settings is sort of historical eras, what it means to read old novels versus mm-hmm. what it means to think about what the novel is doing now and how those two things are connected and how we can narrate sort of histories of the present through looking back into the past. Yeah, seeing the similarity between between those, those historical moments, actually. Um, Garth, can I ask you what it means to for you to take pleasure in reading 
something like a novel or something novelistic. What is that pleasure for you? Yeah. So, and, you know, as I was listening to Daniel talk, I was also kind of revising or sort of adding to my sense or revising my sense of the distinction of the novel or the distinction of kind of aesthetic of narrative versus say argument. And that, that does seem to me a meaningful distinction, even between an essay that is invested in the aesthetic and a novel, like investment in the scenic, um, and the particular kinds of pressures that both scene and, you know, aesthetic sentences, you know, the peculiar technology, like in my case of a kind of Jamesian phenomenological sentence, the pressure that that puts on a problem, a dilemma, a question that allows for me for a distinct and more ample, more sort of existentially, affectively, and ethically engaged kind of thinking than argument or exposition. And so, I mean, that is a very deep pleasure that I get. That combination of a kind of investment in the scenic with a kind of language that is invested in its own aesthetic burden um, that is a kind of pleasure that feels to me distinct to certainly distinct to, you know, fiction and poetry, and I suppose certain kinds of narrative um, yeah. essays. But, you know, that that is important to me and importantly different from other kinds of, of thinking. Yeah. Garth, I want to pick up something you just said, and this is a way to, to to return to Browning's novel a bit, because you've mentioned, I think at least twice, you've mentioned consciousness, or maybe we want to use the word inwardness. And I know that in some of our, you know, pre-correspondence about, about Browning, you've, you made the claim to us that because of the space that this kind of form gives to the exploration of inwardness or the exploration of consciousness, it could potentially perform a, an intervention in the representation of sex. That this might be one of the things that uh, the narrative imagination, if you want to put it that way, can do. And I would love to hear you expand a little bit more on this idea that literature can can intervene in representations of sex. So yeah, so this is something I talk about a lot. Um, sort of the role that, or the role that sex can play in literature, and the role that literature can play in sex. And um, on one hand, you know, we are in a moment in terms of the representation of sex and of sexual bodies. Um, we're in a moment that is utterly unprecedented, just in the terms of the extent to which we are inundated by images of sex and sexualized bodies. At the same time, it seems to me that our cultural representations of sex um, suffer from a dearth of what I think of as embodiedness, which is bodies imbued with consciousness. And, you know, as someone who is very much not anti-porn, very much the, the contrary, it does seem to me that much of pornography, especially much of internet pornography, especially much of the internet pornography that's engaged in a kind of arms race of um, cruelty and extremity, 
um, that great links are gone to to kind of expunge personhood from bodies, to turn bodies into um, kind of sentience-free objects. And even as the pleasure of being made an object is one of my subjects in literature, um, it is troubling to me that that is so dominant in representations, in especially visual representations of sex in our culture. Um, a claim I make about literature and something pretty central to um, my sense of myself as someone invested in literature is that literature is our best technology for the communication of consciousness. And that therefore what interests me in sexual represent in literary representations of sex is the combination of explicitness, and this is something certainly I've tried to do in my own work, the combination of explicitness with this peculiar technology that I've already talked about of this kind of phenomenological sentence that in both its kind of propulsion and its recursiveness um, is a tool both for the production of inwardness and for the communication of inwardness. Um, that seems to me interesting and the kind of intervention that literature can play in a cultural moment when I think we desperately need a greater sense of embodiedness to accompany our greater access to images of sexualized bodies. Barbara Browning, I mean, I love this book and I love thinking about this book as a kind of, um, as part of that intervention, because I think it is deeply thinking about the question of representing representing sex and intimacy, but doing so in a way different from the way that I usually talk about that. Um, Barbara Browning is capable of writing sex explicitly. Um, in her first book, The Correspondence Artist, there's a kind of remarkable um, scene that involves a description, a very detailed description of, a, of an imagined blowjob um, or a proposed blowjob. That description from that novel in this novel becomes the occasion for the erotic turn in the relationship that the narrator of this novel, Barbara Anderson, develops with a man um, named Sami, whom she corresponds with through videos and messages and voicemail um, over the internet. So that relationship does not allow for a kind of physical explicitness or sort of explicit descriptions of sexual acts. It's a book about mediated sexuality. It's a book about, you know, online erotic life, about sexting, about sharing intimate videos. Um, you know, the book's subtitle, which isn't on the cover, but is inside, is, um, you know, the full title of the book is The Gift or Techniques of the Body, which is um, a reference to Marcel Moss and uh, an essay in which he talks about sex as um, a technique of the body. And I think this is a book that's interested in various ways in which we can um, make use, make technical use of our bodies, obviously like dance, performance, also sex. But Barbara Browning adds to that a really fascinating interest in the question of prosthesis and ways in which we extend the body and sort of allow the body to be mobile. And so, you know, Sami um, has a prosthesis. He One of his legs has been amputated, so he has a prosthetic leg. But then there's also um, the trans performance artist Ty, who um, talks about his um, cock, sort of a dildo, as um, an extension of his body. Um, there's also though, fascinatingly, and then in response to that, when, when Ty says about sort of his favorite dildo, that it feels like an extension of his body, Barbara, the narrator responds, my body is an extension of my body. <laughs> and so this idea of a way for 
intimacy and corporeality to extend beyond um you know the the sort of boundaries of the physical body and she talks about this in terms of knitting she says when she knits things for people it's a way that she can feel that sort of she is in contact with them even when they're not near and then obviously you know, she sends these videos um, some of which we can see. Another way in which this novel challenges definitions of the novel is that um, it is a multimedia novel. Um, so the videos that are tagged throughout the book are actually, I think, really crucial to the book as an aesthetic experience. But then there are also videos that she doesn't show us, um, which are hand dances that are masturbatory, um, that she won't, that are sort of private between her and Sami. But all of these are ways to make, to sort of explain take seriously the idea of virtual sexuality and, you know, what it means to have an intimacy that is mobile in ways that I think we're not accustomed to think of intimacy as, as being. Yeah. Hi, I'm Alex Merriweather. I'm general manager at Harvard Bookstore. And I'm Rachel Cass. I'm the buying and inventory manager at Harvard Bookstore. Harvard Bookstore is a unique and special place to shop, a locally owned, independently run Cambridge landmark since 1932. What I love about Harvard Bookstore is that we are across the street from Harvard University, so we have a really academic, intellectual audience, but we're also in the middle of Harvard Square, which has a really diverse population of local customers and tourists, and so we get to sell all kinds of different things everything from sociology to romance novels. We are partnering with Public Books on this podcast season about the novel, and we wanted to tell you, the listeners, about Harvard Bookstore's virtual event series. Uh, Harvard Bookstore's award-winning series was named Boston's Best Virtual Author Series last year by Boston Magazine, and you can see our listings for upcoming events at harvard.com events. You can also shop our shelves from home at harvard.com, which is designed to reflect what it's like being in the Harvard Bookstore, looking at the front tables and the new releases section, including our new This Week page, which will display all the latest new releases from that Tuesday's new releases. Okay, now back to the show. Danny, you've you've written about um, how Victorian novels reckon with with love or desire or, or or sex, right? And and I'm interested to see what you how you respond to how Garth described Browning's novel because it struck me as Garth was describing it that there is something. I mean, this this will normally sound pejorative, and I don't mean it in a pejorative sense, but there's something interestingly Victorian mm. about the depictions of sexual intimacy here, precisely because they are mediated. Right there, there's there are there are eroticizable objects or body parts that are often not traditionally eroticizable or, or not within, let's say, you know, run of the mill pornography. And they reminded me uh, actually quite a bit of the 19th century. I don't know if this is something that you that you felt yeah. about this. Yeah, I think that there's a real interesting question about you know like what it means to to. Um, write about sex without sex scenes. I mean, I, it's interesting in Garth's response saying like, she really can write a sex scene <laughs> it's in this other novel. But in this novel, it's about, I mean, is there a meaningful difference in talking about the novel's representation of sex versus the novel's representation of what we might call sexuality? That sort of 
um, abstraction of sex that I think is really beautifully captured in that, you know, my body is the extension of my body line from this novel. But I also think, you know, one of the stories about um, the novel and the kind of like, why do we read novels that's as old as the form itself um, is that novels give us kind of a practice ground um, for working out difficult problems that we're going to encounter in real life. We get to kind of like figure things out and think with novelistic characters and in fictional worlds about, you know, um, ethical dilemmas as Garth was talking about before, or, um, you know, all of the really, really difficult situations that we might encounter one day, but haven't yet. And it's a lot easier to kind of practice encountering those problems in the novel before we do in real life. And there's something really interesting. I think one of the maybe meta novelistic aspects of this novel is how it encourages us to think that way about sex in the novel, um, virtual sex as potentially a kind of practice for sex itself, um, as a way of, you know, a, a zone of experimentation, play, um, trying on different kinds of intimacy. Right. Yeah. Garth. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's absolutely right. And then I also think that Browning wants to take seriously a kind of expansion of what sex can mean. So there's a beautiful, one of the real people who's a recurring character in this book and also appears in other of Browning's books is um, Lauren Berlant. And Lauren Berlant says something really wonderful. Who's very much a real um, person, we should say. Right? Very much a real <laughs> person um, and a very brilliant person. Um, and says something about, gives offers a definition of love as sort of the attempt to sort of be in sync with someone, like the, assent, the, the attempt to sort of attune your rhythm to another person's rhythms. Barbara Browning, I think, sort of has talked about like making music as a form of eroticized intimacy with another person. Um, and that as a way of being in sync that is in some ways consonant to the way of being in sync that one might say sex can be. Um, and there's one video in particular um, among the videos that accompany this book in which Sami, this character, um, has left a very agitated voicemail. What Barbara Anderson, the character, does is make a dance to that voice where she synchronizes her bodily movements with sort of Sami's very broken, hesitating, full of phatic utterance voicemail. And that, I think, within the world of the book is something analogous to maybe even kind of the same as sex that, you know, and then also something that I think is very beautiful and gets into the book's um, concerns with sort of gift economies and what it means as an artist to take something from someone and then potentially offer it back to them. And then, you know, the sort of Marcel Mose or Lewis Hyde theory of, of gift economies that there is an accrual of value in the act of giving, where she says, you know, I wanted him to see, because Sami clearly feels humiliated by his anxiety and humiliated by the breakdown of his language. And she says, I wanted him to see the dignity of it. Like I wanted him to see his own dignity. Um, that to me, I mean, I just think, you know, the question of where sex ends and other kinds of intimacies take over, but 
there's something very beautiful being worked out here about ways in which we relate to one another, what it means to be ethically responsible to each other. Um, and it's kind of wonderfully given this metafictional 21st century, possibly but not necessarily ironizing frame of the fact that maybe this guy doesn't even exist. And maybe this is, as Daniel said, just catfishing. Yeah. So on, on that on that note, I, I want to take what you just said, Garth, and, and ask you a question about how the reader gets brought into that network. Because, you know, the, the novel is called The Gift, but it starts with a spam email, right? And there is this question throughout about the giving of entirely gratuitous things, things that you may not actually have asked for or potentially may not even want. And so the, you know, the question of, of actually of consent is is raised in a, in a number of of different ways here, right? But but particularly, I think you know how the reader of this novel finds themselves caught up in that network because often it's quite direct. And and in fact, one of the very last sentences of the novel invokes a you. There's a, there's a, an explicit turning to the the person who reads, you know, as if this novel is a, is a gift to us, right? We're we're being asked to to accept it. So. So what kind of what kind of relationship with the reader do you think Browning wants here? How how are we brought into some of these practices that she's describing? Yeah, so I mean Daniel I think already mentioned sort of one of the most key phrases in the novel which is inappropriate intimacy. And the idea that, you know, Barbara Anderson and Barbara Browning are fascinated by this question of inappropriate intimacy. Um in a conference talk she gave that's available on YouTube, Barbara Browning talked about this and talked about how between the writing of the novel, which the writing of the novel is dated in the novel, interestingly, and it's, I think, like 2013. And the novel's not published until 2017. And then, of course, and then in this video, I think she was talking maybe 2019 about it. And she sort of said, well, obviously now the question of inappropriate intimacies, like our sense of that has changed. Um, and the sense of, you know, to what extent we're comfortable with theorizing that as a positive phenomenon versus as, you know, uh, uh, something that infringes upon our consent. And I admire Barbara Browning for her acknowledgement of the difficulty and complication of that and the ways in which, you know, we have to qualify our positive thinking about inappropriate intimacies. And yet con she continues to claim it. And sort of say that actually, no, this is something really essential in what it means to be human and especially what it means to engage with art that, you know, I do feel this very much, you know, in my own cherished experiences as a reader, they are experiences of intimacy. And then, you know, when I um, published a book and began to travel and talk to people about that book and I mean, over the last five years, um, it is so striking to sort of see the other side of that. And of course, you know, to meet a stranger who has had an intimate experience of me. Um, and, you know, that's discomforting and also kind of miraculous and um, fascinating. But yeah, the way that, so I do think the book forces us into a kind of inappropriate intimacy. Um, it presumes that we are eager to be made intimate with Barbara Browning. And it also engages us in the project of fictionality. And to me, the miracle of this book 
is, um, you know, all along, Barbara Browning has been telling us what she's making up, has been telling us elements of the book that are fictional, has been saying, you know, um, this is not this person's real name, etc. And she tells us that one character, Olivia, the lover of Barbara Anderson, has been entirely fictionalized um, because the real person objected. And it's very important. And in a way that I would like to worry a little bit because I feel like maybe it's a dodge about other kind of irresolvable ethical difficulties in being an artist um, and what that does to people in your life. But it's very important to Barbara Anderson and to Barbara Browning to ask permission of people before putting them into a novel and to give them the option to edit, to change, to refuse to be part of the project. And this person, the real lover, quote unquote, of Barbara Anderson, objects and says, take me out. And so Olivia is this fictional replacement of a real person. Um, you know, in the novel, like I think if I were sort of looking for problems to have with this sort of as a novel, I think, you know, one thing that I might say 20 pages from the end is like, Olivia's not much of a character. She doesn't play a real role. I don't really understand. You know, if I were sort of to do a workshop thing, I don't really understand this relationship. I feel like the novel's kind of turning away from it. And then very near the end of the book, um, there's an astonishing moment where Barbara and Olivia go to a Taylor Mac concert um, at Bard College. And there is a brilliant virtuosic guitarist who gives a solo. And it becomes the, the page of the novel's catharsis. And that catharsis inheres in the revelation that Barbara Anderson says, that is the real lover. And she told me she could only appear in the book as a rock star. And that's what she is. And that, like, to me, it's one of the astonishing experiences I've had as a reader. And there's a way that it retroactively or retrospectively charges all of the book's meditations on fictionality and all of the book's metafiction in general and things that I think sometimes in other writers feel to me kind of hokey or distancing and keep me from fully engaging with the novel emotionally. It just makes it like volcanically hot and urgent. And I just like, if there were one, like I would love to learn how to do that. Like I'm so <laughs> envious of that move because I do think that's like the moment where not just that page, but the whole book leaps and becomes something I think really, really extraordinary. Yeah. That it, it is it's an amazing moment, and I I want to I want to stick with this a bit. And and Danny, you and I might have uh, a similar way of thinking about this, maybe. Which is, you know, when I when I was thinking about the Olivia character, and then how you know how we are informed, not immediately, not at the start, but we are informed. I I, I want to say my memory something like halfway through. You know, by the way, um, this character is actually fictional for the reasons that 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 Garth said. I I thought of this this sort of debate that occurs in the 19th century around the status of the admission of the fictionality of your own characters, right? And this uh, this is something that Henry James had a lot to say about, almost entirely negative, right? And, and, and you know, writing about Anthony Trollope, and Trollope was given to these moments of saying, look, I, I, I don't want you to worry. This is a story that I'm telling, and this story is going to go in this direction, so don't worry that this bad thing is going to happen because I've taken care of it for you. And James was, you know, got quite bothered by this and, and and used even kind of religious language to describe this as like a sin. He said it's it's a, a betrayal of a sacred office to admit the fictionality of your work. 
And I, I wondered, um, you know, but the Trollopian side would be something like, in fact, what, what the reader wants is trust. Browning seems to be on both sides of this. I mean, how, how, did, how did you see how this plays out? I have written here in my notes on the novel Trollop. We are thinking along <laughs> the same lines, Nick. Um, because I, I, I entirely agree with you that I think that there's something sort of weirdly and unexpectedly Trollopian about this novel. I think partly it comes, I mean, this really actually does come back to the question of the novel itself as gift for me or as potentially like unwanted or unasked for gift. Because one of the interesting things about this narrator to me is that kind of worry and insecurity that runs through the novel about the reception of the gift, which I think, you know, is part of the novel's argument about what it means to give is that there's always this worry that accompanies it of like, is this what you want? Is this, does this give you pleasure? And the novel, the the narrator of this novel sort of frequently asks those kinds of questions of the reader. There's a, there are a lot of these moments of perhaps you're wondering at this point, or um, would you like to know more about how Ty paid for his MFA? And so this is not a narrator, a Jamesian narrator, who is sort of like very confident about what we must and should know and about how the narrative must be constructed in order to have a kind of, I don't know, aesthetic cohesiveness. This is a narrator who's sort of always worried about whether she's giving us what we want. Yeah, I, I, I you know, it strikes me that one difference, <clears throat> a sort of important difference that might exist, you know, be, be, between the 19th century and now is that, I don't know about the rest of you, but I was tempted. So I didn't know, of course, initially that uh, the Olivia character was fictional. And, and I believe that Barbara Anderson, the narrator, says at one point, no, she, she's an academic star. And I, she's a she's a professor of German, right, and a translator, I think, in, in the novel. And I thought, it literally crossed my head, oh, I should Google this person because I'm curious who this might be. And, you know, of course, the reader of Trollope can't Google any of these <laughs> characters, um, but I can. Like, I can find, you know, and, and she does point to the existence of, of some of these videos she describes online, their continued existence online. You, I, I didn't, pursue that. I didn't look any of them up, but you could. And so there always is this ability, I think now we have to, to externally verify or, or, you know, whether you want to call it verification or, or, or I don't know, extra literary stalking. I, I don't know what, you know, what one would want to say about that impulse, but it's defeated mm. by the novel in this way, which I, I actually thought was, was incredibly refreshing <laughs> in a way. I don't know. Was I the only one who had the impulse to, uh, to move outside the novel to the internet, or, or is that a sign of my internet-poisoned mind? Oh, I definitely had that impulse, and I I did, you know. And, you know, there it's wonderful where, you know, so another kind of inappropriate intimacy, I mean, Barbara Browning or Barbara Anderson, um, they draw you into a kind of conspiracy along these lines. So, like, it is very easy to figure out who Ty is, um, but then you know, Barbara Anderson says, if you figure this out, please, could you keep it to yourself? Because there's someone Ty doesn't want to read this book. Um, you know, there's also, so the best friend, Rebecca, um, it's very easy to figure out. And this, I think it's fine to say, because they did an interview together where they talk about it, um, is Rebecca Miller, the filmmaker, um, and who was, you know, Barbara Browning's roommate at Choate and they've been best friends ever since. And there's a way that I do. So I think on one, like, I think Barbara Browning expects us to 
um, sort of reach for those things. And there's a way in which the kind of novelistic performance continues in these paratexts, like the interview she does with Rebecca Miller. Um, so yeah, but I definitely yeah. like, and also in the idea of stalking, I mean, Barbara Browning, she calls herself a stalker at one point in this book. And then she said elsewhere, you know, she says things like, I have a lot of sympathy with stalkers, you know, yeah. and, um, there's a way in which she almost stalks Sammy for a while, right? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm really glad we're talking about this Olivia moment because this discussion is giving me a sort of different way to understand my own reaction to it. I found that moment devastating, it, it, it very moving in the way Garth is describing, but sort of crushing. And I think that um, part of that has to do with this what we're talking about is this kind of like reality hunger of like looking outside of the text for what will anchor it in reality. And I think even within the sort of novel itself, um, Olivia, as I reflected on what made me so crushed to learn that she was the only purely fictional character is that this is the only character who the narrator has a sort of, um, direct and embodied intimacy with that feels authentic and sincere and erotic. I mean, I think we might talk about the narrator's mother as well. It's the only other person who she sort of has a relationship of intimate touch with. Um, so there's something, I think maybe that's the source of my devastation is we the anchoring of the novel in reality sort of gets blurred a little bit. Um, when we learn that this character is actually sort of just barely outside of the text and sort of beyond our reach in a way that Lauren Berlant isn't, we could like, you know, send right. her an email. Um, <laughs> it's, so there's something about that idea of the cameo appearance and her just being barely allowed into the text as this rock star that I think has this sort of brilliant um, sense of what it means to be sort of just hovering on the edge of fiction and reality. Then and there it might be that there's a there's a desire of the readers that's um, you know that's that's invoked and frustrated mm, in mm. some way, right? Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, I do think there is for me something so powerful, and it's not about like the the sort of biographical facticity of characters or whatnot, but it's instead about some kind of warrant of like affective reality. So the idea that, you know, there is this emotional, this sort of response to something I too, Daniel experienced that moment as devastating and that, you know, there is some way in which the whole novel is a response to that devastation and there's something even deeper that I find um, I'm so fascinated by this idea, and it's something I want to think about a lot more, but the extent to which, so this novel is tagged to various real world things like uh, Occupy Wall Street, um, the financial collapse, you know, the need for new economies. But there's also something deeper than that, or, or certainly earlier than that, um, which is the AIDS crisis. And there is a way in which, so Barbara Browning mentions early in the book, sorry, Barbara Anderson, in a poem, which has also been um, ascribed to Barbara Browning, uh, in a poem sort of talks about a lover dying of AIDS and being utterly devastated by that. And then later in the novel, um, 
Barbara Browning is talking about her terror. Barbara Anderson, excuse me, is talking about, I'll say Barbara, Barbara Browning does this too. She'll sort of be talking about the novel and she'll say I, and then correct herself and say Barbara Anderson. But Barbara Anderson um, is talking about her terrible memory. And she says, you know, I just forget things. It's so crazy. I can't remember things. I only remember details and they're not the most important details. And she ascribes that to PTSD. And then she ascri- and then she traces the PTSD back to the loss of this lover. Um, who, and, and then she says, but I'm also grateful to that because sometimes I think that the space cleared up when all those memories went away, created a space that allows me to be creative. And there's a way in which like the whole genealogy of genealogy of herself as an artist going back to AIDS and to the devastation of the early AIDS crisis and she, you know, AIDS pops up elsewhere in the book. Like she talks with Lauren Berlant about changes in sort of aesthetics in the wake of effective HIV therapies. Um, she compares Pussy Riot to ACT UP. Like there's a way that AIDS hovers over this novel and also over Barbara Browning's whole life as an as an as an artist and also as an academic. Her second academic book was about um AIDS and sort of the symbols of AIDS. And there's kind of brilliantly and devastatingly um, a footnote in that book in which she discloses the narrative of her relationship with this Brazilian man who um, was HIV positive. And like, there's a way in which that too charges the whole endeavor with um, a kind of urgency of needing to survive devastation. And um, that to me sort of charges things that in another novel might annoy me, like sort of constantly pointing out, this is fictional, this is fictional, um, charges all of that with an emotion that I just find extraordinarily compelling. So Danny, you 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 teach contemporary queer fiction or queer literature. Do you do you see do you see AIDS in this book in ways that are familiar to you or perhaps different than what you see elsewhere? I mean, Garth's reading of this aspect of the novel is, I think, exactly right. I have nothing to add or to or correct in that reading. <laughs> That's a beautiful way to think about it. And I think actually really it hadn't um, occurred to me as being the thread that it, that it is and that I'm now very much persuaded that it is. Um, I think that, you know, it makes me think differently too about that sort of double meaning of gift as is it poison or that sort of um, problem of circulation of the circulation of pleasure is also potentially a a dangerous or circulation that has to do with mortality Um, but I think that's a really compelling way to think about that problem of circulation that you started by talking about Garth in the novel is this in any way related to something else about the novel that I, I just wanted to bring up, which is the way in which it's so steeped in not just other kinds of writing, but uh, entirely other kinds of our aesthetic milieu, right? So you have you have uh, you know you have performance art, you have poetry, you have ukulele covers, you have dance. All you know, there, there are a number of different aesthetic milieu here that are all sort of seen as continuous with one another rather than distinct in any particular way. There's a sense in the novel, which is interesting that, you know, fiction or autofiction or, or literary imagination is, is somehow wildly different than these other pursuits. And 
you know, I, I, I don't know if that has something to do with a, a, the, the cohesion of the arts themselves maybe coming out of that enormous trauma in the eighties and nineties. Is, is that, is that a connection one would want to draw? I mean, I, I guess I'm, I, it, it's a way of thinking about what it means to write a novel that's so suffused in other arts actually, and relatively uninterested, I think in the novel itself as one of those other arts. I mean, I would say it's one of the things that I love about this novel. So um, another thing that Barbara Browning is is sort of committed to is keeping alive um, the viability of utopia as an utopian thinking, as sort of something that has aesthetic and ethical and social force. And um, one of her... Uh, good friends and colleagues who provides the epigraph for this book is Jose Munoz, um, who wrote Cruising Utopia. Um, And there is something utopian to me and queerly utopian in the book's vision of sociality and the way in which a kind of, there's a kind of sociality that is, um, it is impossible to distinguish from art making, a a sociality that is art making and the exchange of art and the way in which sort of, again, I mean, to me, if I had to say one in one word what the book is about, I would say circulation. And there are all of these instances in which, um, you know, Lauren Berlant will give Barbara Browning the gift of a phrase. Like, I think at one point, Lauren Berlant says, all love is autistic. And then... Barbara Anderson gives that as a gift to Sami in a message, sort of repeats that. Sami records a piece of music that he calls All Art is Autistic. And then Barbara Anderson makes a dance to that piece of music and makes a video of it and sends it back to Sami and puts it in this novel. So there are all ways in which, you know, you sort of see this gift, which, I mean, it really is Lewis Hyde, right? I mean, in circulating um, a cruise. And she makes the high, she quotes the Hydean argument that sort of a gift economy is like sex in the way in which, in that the more you spend, the more you have, right? And there is something utopian in that vision of circulation, of sociality, Um, And to me, that is in part what sort of this constant circulation among arts um, is doing. I mean, it is kind of a vision of the way life should be. Um, And that's another thing that I just, I really adore about this novel. So that might be a good moment to to pull back for a second to our our frame. That is the the, the frame of, of what value novels might still have for readers in the 21st century, given all the options and, and competing media that exist. And, and you know, Garth, you've, you've put this, in, you know, specifically related to Browning's novel as the imagination of a, of a, or a certain kind of utopic imagination. Um, now, that's interesting because, of course, that often is not the way the novel is imagined as a form. It's often either that it tells us the way things really are, it tells us what, what is true rather than what might be true, right? Or, or maybe even uh, maybe even exposes us to truths we don't want to know or something like that, right? Danny, do you, 
Do you see that? I mean, does this resonate with you? This uh, this utopic imagination is something that that the novel right now might might be able to do in a way that gives it a certain service that other 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 forms don't possess or other media don't possess. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a particularly interesting question in that this is an that utopian imagination of the novel and of the kind of theory of the gift economy that it wants to kind of lay out um, is about collectivity, sort of a more radical or more profound kind of collectivity. Um, And we have such a long history of thinking of the novel as a deeply individualistic genre. And I think particularly coming back to this question about autofiction and the different but related question of the the first person novel, um, which is so rooted and so limited by um, the sort of narrowness of the first person point of view. It's interesting then to think about how the novel might help us to imagine sort of utopian possibilities of collectivity um, as opposed to that kind of individualism that runs through the novel all the way back through the 19th century. So Garth, I'm, I'm curious how you'd answer that question that, that Daniel was just addressing. What do you think novels still provide readers in the 21st century when we have so many other cultural forms or media at our fingertips? Like what does the novel still do for us? Yeah, I guess I would say that there are just modes of thinking that feel to me necessary that are only available to me in the novel. So something that I often say is that for me, you know, the motivating impulse to make art never has to do with an argument, never has to do with, you know, any point that I want to make. If I have a point I want to make, I will do something other than make art. You know, I turn to art when there is some situation or problem or quandary that utterly defeats my categories for argumentative thinking and maybe especially my categories for moral or ethical judgment. So what spurs me to make art is a sense I have in relation to a particular situation or question or problem that I am staring into an abyss. And art is the instrument I have for navigating the abyss. I I mean, I think that's why we make art in general. And I think I turn to fiction because fiction offers, you know, me the tools that fit my hands. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I want to end. I mean, this is a, a a wonderful place to stop, but I want to end by actually opening it out beyond Browning for a second. Is there another twenty first century novel that you you would love to tell people about? You would love to sort of shout from the rooftops about and just recommend? Yeah, I'm going to take this opportunity to um, plug uh, an amazing Toronto based uh, writer, um, Jia Ching Wilson Yang. Um, her novel Small Beauty. I love that book. It's wonderful. Yeah. It's a wonderful book, and it's been a really great pleasure to teach it a couple of times. And it's published by a, a really great uh, Montreal-based press called Metonymy Press. That I'd also just recommend sort of looking at their catalog. They're particularly focused on publishing trans fiction. I, I want to sing from the rooftops about it. I still think it's a sort of maybe um, under-read novel. It's been celebrated as trans fiction. It won the Lambda Literary Award for Transfiction 
several years ago. Um, but I think, you know, queer and trans fiction can so often struggle to find an audience beyond queer and trans readership. And I think this is one that, um, really should have a, a wide readership. It's, it's a, a beautiful and lyrical novel. It's about a, a mixed race trans woman, um, who returns to her hometown in the country, um, after the death of her cousin with whom she's quite been quite close, um, to sort of manage his affairs and is living in, in the house that her cousin used to live in with, with her aunt. Um, and she, while, while there and while sort of working through grief, she learns a lot about her own family and about the history of the town that helps her to make sense of her own, uh, sort of narrative as a trans woman. And it's beautiful. And it's, as I said, it's been a great pleasure to teach it and to talk to students about it. And I'd love it if a lot more people read it. That sounds great. Danny Garth, uh, do you have one in mind? Sure. I mean, I'd second Daniel's recommendation of that book. I agree. I think everyone should read it. Um, and my choice, and it's funny thinking about, you know, the possibility of the utopic or, or what it would mean. Um, so utopian, the, the sort of utopic potentiality of the novel or of literature to me has everything to do with form and very little to do with content. Um, and thinking about the usefulness of fiction is always difficult for me because I just ref I, I really want to resist um the sort of lure of the instrumental and of trying to sort of justify um you know literature in instrumental terms. But the the utopic potential in fiction has to do with allowing me to occupy what seems to me a kind of ideal way of being and an ideal way of thinking, an ideal way of attending to the world. And so um, the the novel that gets my vote for kind of most extraordinary novel so far in the 21st century, or certainly one of the two or three, is a very sad, devastating book by Anuk Arud Prakasam called The Story of a Brief Marriage, mm -hmm. um, which is set in a Sri Lankan refugee camp that is being menaced both by... Um, sort of government forces and rebel forces. And it is about, indeed, a brief marriage um, between a young man and a young woman in that camp. And um, it is just utterly devastating. And, you know, I know many people, and I think one reason that book, even though it it has been celebrated by people like Colm Toybean and um that book has not found a huge readership is that I know from some people that they're scared of it, that they're sort of scared to read something that they feel will be so devastating and sad. And yet my feeling on finishing it is finally one of this kind of extraordinary affirmation um, because of not because anybody's going to have a happy ending or um, you know, not because even you know, we can believe that anyone is going to survive or get out of this situation, but because of the sort of way that it inhabits what seems to me like an ideal way of being a human being in an impossible situation. Yeah. It, I, I, I can absolutely testify to that being true of that novel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much both of you for this this has given me enormous amounts to think about and and now i really do feel like i have to go back and, and reread the gift again me um, too. with all these insights in my head 
So thank you so much. This has been great. Oh, thank you. It's been such a joy. Thank you, both of you. Thanks to both of you. What a pleasure. And that's our show. A huge thank you to Garth Greenwell and Daniel Wright for sharing their thinking about novels and intimacy. You can find links to their work at publicbooks.org slash podcast, including an essay that Daniel wrote about Garth's novel, Cleanness. At publicbooks.org slash podcast, you'll also find a list of further reading curated by our guests in case you want to read more or use this material in your classes. We'd be so grateful if you would rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show there or in Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. Next time on Public Books 101, I talk to the novelist and nonfiction writer Heidi Julewitz and the book history scholar Leah Price. We're curious about how novels represent catastrophes, like pandemics, and how they orient us in historical time. So I hope you'll join me for part four of Public Books 101, The Novel Now, as we wonder, how do novels help us think about disaster? This podcast is a production of Public Books, in partnership with the Columbia University Library's Digital Scholarship Division. Thank you to Michelle Wilson at the library for partnering with us on this project. This episode was produced and edited by Annie Galvin with production assistance from Kelly Dean McKinney. Our theme music was composed by Jack Hamilton. Special thanks to Audrey Stewart at Harvard Bookstore and to the editorial staff of Public Books for their support for this project. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you next time.